This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Akev, here at the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg. And with Parsha's Akev, we have, similarly to what we had last week in Parsha's Vaschanan, yet another Parsha that is most foundational on the one hand and underrated on the other. Foundational in the sense that Parsha's Akev contains some pretty important and monumental, and I would say famous, passages and sources that have such an impact on our liturgy and religion at large. And yet it's underrated, on the other hand, in the sense that Parshas Akev is not necessarily memorialized or immediately remembered for containing these important pieces, which Be'ezra Hashem we will discuss. All the while, we will continue to address the natural challenges that Sefer Devar imposes, and that is... In Parsha Panorama, we know that we try to get the best understanding we could of what exactly each individual Parsha is about. Now, with Sefer Devarim, we've mentioned that most of Devarim is really a very long speech from Moshe Rabbeinu. And what that means is we have to try to get to the bottom of what the different components of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech is about. Right? At first glance, you would think that one really long speech is going to be really boring. Now, I would not actually say that about Sefer Devarim. Devarim has some pretty important and monumental pieces, as we've already been discussing, especially last week in Parshas Ve'eschanan. But what we do have to work on is to try to understand what, in fact, is the line of demarcation between the different points of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech. If the speech is being divided into several parshios, and if we have so many different components to our parsha, Right, we can just easily say that this parsha is about this part of Moshe's speech. But the question is, what in fact are these parts of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech about? And so, as we've been doing and as we will continue to do here in Parsha Panorama, we will look at all the components of Moshe Rabbeinu's words and we will try to be able to separate and understand the quote-unquote prophetic stream of consciousness of Moshe Rabbeinu, what in fact is each subject about, and we will do that while also tending to yet another challenge that we've already started to address in Sefer Devarim, and that is the issue of history, and particularly Moshe Rabbeinu's piecing of history, his recounting of history. We've mentioned that if Sefer Devarim was just a review of the entire Torah, which is that which is how some people simply translate Mishnah Torah, we argue that it couldn't be just a review because Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't review everything. And even in the history, it's just odd enough that Moshe Rabbeinu does not recount and relate all of the history in chronological order. We saw this in, in, in Parsha's Devarim when Moshe Rabbeinu went from Harsinai to the Chetamaraglim. Right? So it was a little bit strange that he did that. And back in Vaschanan, he, he decided to elaborate on Harsinai again, reviewing the Aserus Edivros, the revelation at Harsinai. So we're going to see a little bit more of that jumping around. And what that apparently tells us, if Moshe Rabbeinu is choosing, and again, this is all through a prophetic voice as well, even though the voice of Devarim is qualitatively and in style different from the voice of the rest of the Torah, even though it is all written and spoken by Moshe Rabbeinu. But the, the, the voice of Moshe Rabbeinu, is, it comes out differently in Sefer Devarim. And what we see is that Moshe Rabbeinu is not merely just recounting history, but apparently Moshe Rabbeinu and the prophecy that he is 
issuing in Devarim has some other agenda, right? Moshe Rabbeinu could have reviewed the history and started from, you know, the, the very first time, either from creation or the very first time that he and the Bnei Israel met each other, and he could talk about all the things that they had gone through. And then Moshe Rabbeinu can drop the anchor um, every now and then at a particular story and talk about the Musra and the Hashkafa, all the important points that he wants them to learn uh, um, from those stories. That's not what Moshe Rabbeinu does. Moshe Rabbeinu goes along, gives his speech, and apparently he drops the anchor to discuss the historical pieces that are relevant to that. And we're going to see that very particularly in Akev, I think more so than what we've seen until this Parsha. And what this again tells us is that there's a greater agenda. The agenda isn't review history and then along the way tell them what they can learn from it and go in order. Apparently there's a greater agenda. Moshe Rabbeinu has a point, a larger point, and we might argue larger points that he's trying to communicate. And he uses the historical background as he sees fit and as the prophecy sees fit. Moshe Rabbeinu takes and collects pieces from history and he copies and pastes them again as they are apparently relevant to the message that he's trying to communicate. So we're going to see all of that as we try to understand the different components of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech. One more point of introduction as we move forward is that if you will humor me and you will give it a chance, come along with me on this journey, I want to suggest that when it comes to the piecing of the different partios, so for example, last week was Vayaschan and this week we have Akev. what I want to suggest is that as we try to understand the links between one parsha and the next, we will notice a very important relationship, and I would say a relationship mainly of contrast, though there's enough fair amount for a comparison, but there's a relationship of contrast, apparently, between last week's Parsha Ve'eschanan and this week's Parsha Ekev. And apparently, they are two sides of a coin. And if you like what I have to suggest today, or you have any comments or questions, you could always reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. It's the data then base, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. Same place to go to if you want to make a sponsorship and any dedication for the Harbatzis Torah that we do here. So please... Do not hesitate to reach out. We also have a WhatsApp group, a WhatsApp group, the Database Podcast WhatsApp group, where only I, the admin, can post anything. So it's not one of those noisy WhatsApp groups. And there you will get weekly schedules, all updates and uploads of every sheer workshop or podcast that goes on there. So you'll get to see all of that and you'll be in the know. All you have to do is same thing. Reach out to me at the database at gmail.com with your phone number, and then you will be added immediately. Okay, now let's talk about the Parsha. So, what I want to suggest in terms of the global aspect of Parsha's Akev, before we get to the individual components, so I'll say that a lot of it hinges on the name of the Parsha. The name of the Parsha, once again, is Akev, which, if we can give the best possible translation, I would like to go with the translation of consequences, something that is directly um, the result of something else. This is something that we spoke about earlier this week, at a little bit of length, actually, in Muster Minutes, 
Um, and I think that this component of the Parsha is not just something that appears at the beginning of the Parsha, but it's really a theme that weaves its way through the entire Parsha. So it's important that we understand this concept of consequences. This, I will say also, is not just a motif in Parsha's Akev, this concept of consequences, but it is also really the... Um, the, the, the focal point in terms of understanding the relationship that I'm arguing exists between Parshas Ekev and Parshas Ve'eschanan. So what exactly is the nature of that relationship? So come along. Here we go. So let's talk about the individual components of the Parsha. So at large, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you once again that Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching Klaistral, particularly about consequences of their actions, and he uses history and hindsight as a backdrop for them to understand the natural and perhaps metaphysical spiritual consequences of their actions. And we'll see what the focus, what the theme of consequences is trying to bring out. Okay, so with the individual components, I have the first section, just Parshas Akev, you know, Akev consequences. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Bnei Israel that you will consume your Kanani enemies, that'll be a natural consequence of you doing everything you're supposed to do. There'll be various blessings that come, and you'll be able to consume your enemies. And he says, in case you're not sure if you'll be able to do it, remember history. Remember how you were basically up against one of the mightiest nations in the world, against Mitzrayim, and you were able to leave their clutches, something that no nation had ever been able to do before that. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, here's what you'll be able to do. Look at history as proof. And this is also going to be a theme throughout Akev. He's going to, Moshe Rabbeinu will tell them a, a given point that's relevant for them to hear, and then he'll say, here's an history where you can see that. And we can see this if we look at the next section, where Moshe Rabbeinu says to obey Kal HaMitzvah, the entire Torah. And in that he says, remember Hashem. And particularly, he says, look back into history and remember the journey. Remember the journey, how all of your needs were met, despite the trials which in fact existed. It was difficult, it was not simple. And he talks about the mun and how their clothes were, 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 were protected and they were able to make it through the harsh travels of the desert. The, um, the, they had water where in, a, in a place where otherwise they would not have. They were protected from snakes and scorpions. Moshe reviews all of the, to the traveling in the Midbar and says, your needs were met. And what is this the introduction to? To perhaps the first and most important part of the Parsha. We could argue it's, or it's the first most important part of the Parsha. There might be another most important part of the Parsha. But the first one is something that we spoke about in Real Talk Torah this week the concept of benching. Moshe Rabbeinu says, and we spoke about this passage at length, but we have the source for benching in this week's parsha, which is one of the pieces of liturgy that's perhaps the earliest that a child learns, besides for Torah Tzivah Lanu Moshe, which is um, coming up in you know, a bunch of weeks from now, and Shema Yisrael Shem Lekin Hashem that we had last week. But the benching, Birchas HaMazon, comes from this week's parsha, when Moshe Rabbeinu says, remember the journey that you were on, how you had to rely on Hashem for your bread. And he says, you're going to go into a land where bread will not be hard to come across. In fact, the, the land will naturally give you its, 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 its fruits. 
you'll have chita, sa'ura, gefen, te'ena, rima, and zeis, shem, and devash. You'll have all these wonderful and important things that, 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 that you need. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, and what you should do to take care is you will what you should do is you should um, when you eat and be satisfied you should bless Hashem on the wonderful land that Hashem has given you why is this so important? because you were once in a land where you didn't have all these things and you knew that Hashem was, uh, was, was the one taking care of you but when you're in a land that, that naturally produces these things for you you might forget Hashem and specifically for that reason that you thank Hashem for the land for the natural circumstances that make everything easy for you, that's why you should thank Hashem. So it's in this section that Moshe Rabbeinu also says, and what happens if you forget Hashem? Forget history in the Midbar, you know, then you're, what, what's going to happen is you're going to stray from Hashem, you're going to think that you did it all yourself, and then Moshe Rabbeinu warns them that, you know, the, the, the end result could be them doing Avodah Zarah, and that they will perish as a consequence of this, of this crime. So we have section one. Moshe Rabbeinu teaches them once again that you'll consume your Kanani enemies. And remember, what happened to Paro is proof of that. Section two is remembering the journey. This is where we learn about the seven species and benching and what can happen if we neglect to thank Hashem for these good things once he takes us into the land. And then we have section three, where Moshe Rabbeinu returns to the topic of conquering Eretz Yisrael. And here he pairs a couple of interesting uh, topics which we may, we may not have paired together. Moshe Rabbeinu pairs the future event of the conquering of Eretz Yisrael, the conquest. He connects that with the Chet Egel of all things. This is the first time we're mentioning the Chet Egel in Sefer Devarim. Right? We already spoke about the Chet Maraglim in Sefer, uh, in Parshas Devarim. Right? We talked about the, the lack of chronological order. So now Moshe Rabbeinu is going back to the Chet Egel. Okay? What, what is the connection between the Chet Egel and conquering Eretz Yisrael? So Moshe Rabbeinu says, when you go into conquering Eretz Yisrael, don't think that it's by your own merits that you're going to do that. Because remember history. Remember how not worthy you kind of are. Remember how you angered Hashem in the Midbar, you committed the Chet Egel, and Moshe Rabbeinu makes passing references to other Averis that they committed. Right, like in Kivros Hataiva or or at at Masamriva. So this we spoke about. You could find all, all this earlier in Sefer Bamidbar and in Shemos. The Moshe Rabbeinu says, realize you've had some pretty unflattering moments. So don't think that you're just sitting pretty. You're going to be able to be successful in whatever you do because of yourself. In other words, don't think that you don't have to take care. Um, that you don't have to take care of your own actions. Don't think that you have to gauge what you're going to do because there will be consequences, just like there were in the past. There will be consequences for not doing what we are supposed to be doing. Now, something to recall, just in the back of your mind, while I mentioned that there's apparently this interplay between Akev and Vaschanan, it's a good time to mention that Micheta Egel is really... Well, what we saw in the Egel was the reversal and the opposite, almost the consequences of not doing what we we're supposed to do based on our experience at Har Sinai. Right in Vashchan, we had the Aseris Adibros. We were given the Torah, as it were, or at least we were entered into the covenant. Right? And now, what happened when we didn't hold up to that covenant? That was the Chet Egel story. Consequences. Okay, so something to consider. All right, so let's just keep that once again in the back of your mind as we return to Moshe Rabbeinu's speech where Moshe Rabbeinu starts 
to play around with the order of history. Because Moshe Rabbeinu goes from talking about the Cheta Egel and various other Averos to the death of Aaron HaKohen, jumping to the end of the 40 years. Right, Moshe Rabbeinu's jump is, like, is, is some 38, 39 years into the future as Moshe Rabbeinu goes from the Cheta Egel to the death of Aaron. Why does he do that? So we'll have to come back to that question. But this is, you know, the, the, we, can, we can't ignore that because so much happened in between that Moshe Rabbeinu is not talking about. There is a Rashi that, dis- that discusses this issue, and we'll come back to this Rashi. Keep this question also on the back burner. And how do we know that Moshe Rabbeinu is really playing around with the order here? Because Moshe Rabbeinu jumps back those 40 years, or those 38, 39 years. Because the very next section, Moshe Rabbeinu talks about the inauguration or the designation of Levi. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, Ba'esahi, at that time, that's a lesson that we found a lot in Sefer Devarim already, where Moshe Rabbeinu connects historical pieces, but Moshe Rabbeinu jumps back, talks about the Chet Egel story again. This is what Rashi um, in Perak Yud, Pasuk tells us that, yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu goes back to the Egel story. So he goes from the Egel story to the death of Aaron, and talking about how Elazar is going to succeed him, and then he goes back to the designation of Levi, which happened all those years earlier um, at the Chet Egel. So why does Moshe Rabbeinu do that? It's the same question. We'll come back to it. Okay? Now we have two more sections. So we're up to section six of seven. This section I refer to as the pitch. Because in this section, Moshe Rabbeinu has a lot of different things that he's trying to push the Bnei Israel to do, pepping them and prepping them. And here, he basically, this is a, another famous passage, maybe not as famous as benching or the other famous passages that we did not get to yet. But Moshe Rabbeinu says, and now, uh, what does Hashem ask of you? Right? So what, um, so what, what does Hashem ask of you considering all these things? And what, in fact, is it that, that Hashem asks of you at this point? That you fear Him. And it's a very strange passage because, and the Gemara actually talks about this at length. Um, um, thank you to Zichru, I think I can tell you that it's in Brachos and Daf Lamed Gimel, um, where, the to- where the Gemara tells us, um, But the, the point is that Moshe Rabbeinu seems to mention a laundry list of things that you know, you'll, you'll fear him, and you'll, you'll walk in his ways, and ultimately you'll love him. But at the very end, Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's in order so that it should be good for you. That Hashem is asking, literally, that you fear him, and so that it should be good for you. Because apparently, it'll be good for you if you do the right thing, and you have the right mindset, and you have the right emotions, and the right, uh, you know, the right awareness, then there'll be good consequences. In this pitch, Moshe Rabbeinu talks about how we chose your forefathers. He's going to proverbially circumcise your hearts. Right? We're not talking about open heart surgery here. Um, and he, he mentions that Hashem is the God of gods, the master of masters. And this is where we hear for the first time the phrase of Gadol, Gibor, and Nora, describing Hashem. So our whole tefillah, our Shemona Esrei, that which we refer to Hashem, is based on these words in this parsha: Gadol, Gibor, and Nora. Okay, and what's also interesting is that the, the Chumash mentions here, Moshe Rabbeinu mentions that Hashem does not accept shochad, he does not show favoritism. I, I think this is interesting because in Hashem Esra, you might argue that, look, we're buttering up Hashem, calling him Gadol Gibar Nora because we want Hashem to give us good things. No, Hashem doesn't accept bribery, he doesn't show favoritism. 
But what does he do? He carries out the judgment for the Yasam, the Amana, and he loves the Ger. So, meaning Hashem um, gives justice in all circumstances, wherever it's due, even for the, the neglected me- members of society. And Moshe Rabbeinu tells him so many other important things in this pitch. He says that he is your praise, you swear by his name. And he says, remember history, how he made you from 70 people coming down to Mitzrayim to countless. So therefore, love him, recognize history, that you from a young age, you yourselves, not just your forefathers, you witnessed miracles. You saw what happened in Egypt at the Yamsuf and what happened when Korach tried to rebel against the system. Therefore, keep the mitzvot, inherit Israel for yourselves and for your kids forever. So what is the theme here? This pitch is apparently demonstrating the undeniable tov which basic Yeras Hashem will unlock, and there's historical evidence to back it all up. That's this pitch. Finally, we get to the last section where Moshe Rabbeinu talks more about consequences. Here, he does it in the form with the background of looking at Eretz Yisrael versus Eretz Mitzrayim. Right? Looking again at history and then looking at the future. Right? That's what Parshish Akev is really a lot about. It's history and the future. History and destiny. Mitzrayim in the, in the, you know, in the rear view mirror. And then we have Eretz Yisrael in the future. What does Moshe Rabbeinu have to tell them about Eretz Yisrael versus Mitzrayim? He mentions how Egypt, um, he makes reference to the fact that Egypt had a system of irrigation through the Nile. That's how they got their water. But Eretz Yisrael is rain-dependent. Therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu says that Hashem is Doresh. He looks out for Israel all year around. This is what segues into the passage of the Hayam Shemoa. Right? This is the final passage um, of Shema in the Torah. Right? We know that the, the last passage that we say, Vayomer, came up in Parsha Shalach. But now, it's, if you look at the actual order that it's presented in the Chumash, this is the final one. Right? It goes from, uh, the, the order in the Torah is passage number three, passage number one, passage number two. So go figure, none of them are in order. But we get to the final passage that, that's recorded in the Torah. And one question that we really have to think about is, if you consider the similarities between Vahaya Im Shemoah and and a Shman via Hafta, which we had in last week's Parsha, it's kind of noteworthy and, and peculiar, or at least curious, that Moshe Rabbeinu says almost the same passage twice. Right? We have similar themes. We talk about tefillin in both passages, writing these things on your mezuzos. We talk about, um, about um, our relationship with Hashem, that we have to put our entire your entire heart, your entire soul is mentioned in both passages. So if Moshe Rabbeinu was just going to review things that he said last week, you know, why didn't he say it all together? Why is Moshe Rabbeinu repeating these themes? I guess they're important themes, important enough that he's going to repeat them. But it's, it, it is noteworthy that Moshe Rabbeinu is saying a lot of things that he said before. He's just saying them again now. So is that, um, is that significant? And I will argue that I think it is because as similar as Shman via Hafta and the Hayyim Shemoa are, we will notice that the differences between them is what's most important and will drive home my, my, my theory, if we can call it that, about the relationship between Vaishchanan and Akev, what Akev adds to the important messages of Vaishchanan. But just before we, we finish the, these sections, I'll mention that right after Vahayim Shemoa in Shvi'i, Moshe Rabbeinu continues the theme of consequences, talking about that if you do keep the commandments, nobody will stand in your way. So just do what you're supposed to do, and the end result will be promising. 
So those are all the sections. I'll mention them one more time in broader, broader strokes. So first we have Moshe Rabbeinu talking about the consequences, Akev, that you, um, your th- good things will happen if you do the right thing, and you will consume your Kanani enemies. The proof in the pudding, or the proof in so many parshios ago, is Paro. Then we have section number two, remembering the journey and the segue that that made to benching, that when you're going to go into Eretz Yisrael, where you won't be eating mun anymore, but you'll be eating a lot of bread, don't forget Hashem, but thank Hashem. Okay, then we have section three, conquering of Eretz Yisrael, and how it's not by your own merits. Remember the Chet Egel and several other things that you did wrong. So, um, so, so just make sure you're doing the right thing. Section number four, we go to Aaron's death. Section number five, we go back to the designation of Levi. We could make the argument, since all of this is revolving around the Chet Egel, and Aaron's death is just inserted in the middle, that's almost one section. Then six, we have that long pitch of all the important things that Moshe Rabbeinu wants to tell them about how they should do, tell them and tell us all the things we should do, and the things that Hashem is asking of us just so that it be good for us in the end. And then seven, we return to that concept, or we continue discussing the concept of consequences here with Eretz Yisrael versus Mitzrayim. In V'hayim Shemoah, Moshe Rabbeinu, I didn't mention this before, but Moshe Rabbeinu talks about what will happen if we don't do the right thing, V'lo Yihiyah Matar. Eretz Yisrael is rain-dependent, but if we don't do the right thing, there will not be rain. So, so then Moshe Rabbeinu once again tells us that if we do the right thing, nobody will stand in our way. That is Parshas Akev, all the sections wrapped up right there for you. You can put a bow on it. Okay, now let's return to our questions. So let's address the question of the chronological disorder. Right? Why does Moshe Rabbeinu jump from the Chet Egel and the Shvirat Saluchos, the shattering of the Luchos, to the death of Aaron Akoim, which was, again, some 40 years later? And then he jumps back to the designation of the tribe of Levi. So Rashi, um, seemingly coming from the point of Drash, though this could be true, I'll peep shot, um, and Rashi says this in Pasuk Yud, sorry, Perak Yud, Pasuk Vav and Zion, he mentions that the Misasan Shel Tzadikim, the death of the Tzadikim, um, to Hashem is like the day that the Luchos were shattered. And you could see the Nitziv who, who um, adds more onto this idea, he expands on it. But it's still, it's still unclear why Moshe Rabbeinu throws that in the middle. Like, you, you know, you could, he could have talked about the death of Miriam or some, you know, he could pick, that, pick any Tzadik. He specifically singles out Aaron. And when we think about Aaron, and the Chet Egel, that already should, uh, should pique your attention. Because in fact, the Mab and the, Bar- and the Barbanel were piqued by it, and they give a similar suggestion. When you think about, again, Aaron Akoin's involvement in the Chet Egel, you know, you might say that, yeah, we talk about the death of Aaron because maybe this is a time where, you know, we think about what Aaron might have taken to the grave with him, his involvement in the Chet Egel. We know that he crafted the Egel. But what's really, really peculiar is that if you look in the Torah, every time, you know, any of the times that we talk about Aaron's death, whether it's Aaron dying himself or Aaron not being able to enter Eretz Yisrael with everyone else, it's never, it's never, you know, the, it's never attributed to the Chet Egel, which we would argue, knowing nothing else, we would say that this was the biggest, I don't know if we would call it a sin, but the biggest blunder that Aaron has ever made. Right? Chazal talk about how Aaron had all the right intentions, how Aaron was trying to spare the nation, um, not just from Avodah which he was, because again, he was trying to stall them, but even from murder. After what they did to Achur, he didn't think they'd ever be forgiven if they went and murdered the Kohen Gadol, or even though he wasn't the Kohen Gadol at the time, but if they murdered someone else. So Aaron... So Aaron's not really usually blamed for that. We find in Midrashim that Aaron still felt guilty about it, right? In, in Parshas Shmini, there's a Midrash about it when he saw the horns of the Mizbeach and like a Rorschach, 
um, you know, inkblot. He was thinking of the golden calf. But we don't find that explicitly in the Chumash. What is interesting enough is that we find a different Avera that is attributed to him, or at least his reason for dying early, not going to Eretz Yisrael, that's attributed to. What Avera is that? The Avera of Meimariva, Moshe Rabbeinu hitting the rock. And that's kind of awkward, because what did Aaron do with that story? Seemingly, he didn't do anything. Aaron was just standing by. Right? And Aaron, uh, Hashem says, you and Aaron are not going in. It's like, wait, what did I do? So what's going on here? So the Abarbanel and the Malbim, they both suggest, and mainly the Malbim, and we'll focus mainly on the Malbim because this, it's, it's most clear in the Malbim, that really, May Mariva was, uh, you know, Aaron, Aaron's not, his inability to enter Eretz was pinned on May Mariva as an alila, which we could translate as a pretext or an excuse, a gotcha. We're going we're gonna to blame it on this. And it was really a cover-up. And not only was it a cover-up for Aaron, but says the Malbim, it was really a cover-up for Moshe also. Because says the Malbim, the real reason why Hashem closed the doors on Moshe Rabbeinu was because of the chet ha-miraglim. Moshe Rabbeinu acquiescing. You could say, like, what did Moshe Rabbeinu do wrong with the chet ha-miraglim? He just acquiesced. You know, he, he, he spoke to Hashem, he got permission, and okay, everything happened. He didn't do it, the miraglim did it. Yet, says the Malbim, that was apparently the cause. And for Aaron, the real cause was the Cheta Egel. So we have the two greatest tragedies in the history of Klai Yisrael, at least as a nation, the Cheta Egel, the Cheta Meraglim. And the Egel would be the reason why Aaron would not enter Eretz Yisrael. Meraglim would be the reason why Moshe would not enter. But May Meriva is where the blame is pinned as an alila, as a cover-up. So we have to try to understand is, you know, if I'm, if I'm exposing what's being covered up, What's the purpose of it? And you, um, so you can make the argument, I think the Malbim says this, that we shouldn't think that Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron dealt the same amount of blame for these stories as the rest of the nation. Just because they were somewhat involved and they were going to be blamed and not going to Israel, you should not think that you know, these two people in the same story or these groups, these parties in the same story are all getting the same amount of guilt because they're not. Realize the different levels. So that, that's important. We have to understand is what was the connection between all of these things? And in a longer essay, I wanted to suggest that if you think about it, the uh, the stories of uh, the story of Mamariva was really not just a pretext, but it was really a confirmation of all the mistakes um, uh, that Aaron and Moshe made in those respective stories. And now it's coming to full fruition. How so? Well, in the story of the Cheta Egel, Aaron had a really active role. In the story of the Maraglim, Moshe had a very passive role. You could have made the argument, um, at least on Moshe's part, that what's wrong? He, you know, he was, he was, um, you know, he, he was, he, he was completely passive. He barely did anything, right? And with Aaron, you can make the argument that even though he was active, but he was doing it in in good nature and goodwill to be, you know, to be passive and soft. Even though he was, he did it. He had an active role, but he was trying to protect everybody. He was trying to keep people from making an even greater mistake. Well, the blame we find really at May Mariva for both of them, if you think about it, because even though Moshe Rabbeinu had a passive role, and and he he he, he sat back during the Miraglim, at May Mariva, Moshe Rabbeinu had a really active role, and in fact, a lot of his blame we spoke about from the Midrashim came from Kaas. That Moshe Rabbeinu was going too far, pushing too much, acting too much. If Moshe Rabbeinu can be um, credited for the fact that he was passive, then why wasn't he passive in that story? 
right? He, he, if, if he was a little bit more soft, a little bit more passive, he wouldn't have committed the Avera at Meimariva hitting the rock. And what about Aaron? You'll say, listen, Aaron acted only to protect the people. Yes, he was active, but that's because if he sat by and was just an accomplice, you know, then, then they all, everything would have gone wrong. So even if it seemed like Aaron was facilitating the Chet Egel, but, you know, he was trying to protect everyone. Well, where was that Aaron at Meimariva? Right? We had wondered, what did Aaron do wrong at Meimariva? I'm going to argue that's not what he did wrong, it's what he didn't do at all. Right? Because Aaron was standing by as an accomplice, just like he could have been at Chet Egel. He could have just stood by and done nothing, and maybe it's, we could argue... We don't, we, don't, we don't really know what would have happened if he, if he did that. Maybe things would have been different. But if Aaron was looking out to protect people from making a mistake, Aaron could have been that peacemaker at Meimariva when Moshe Rabbeinu was being overtaken by Kaas. So Meimariva kind of pulls all those together. Now, you could take it or leave it, but um, that, that was a suggestion I made way back when. But now let's get back to the larger, larger picture. Right, so you know uh, everything to the credit of Moshe and Aaron. You know, the, um, you know the, their mistakes. We don't understand how the tzaddik is judged kichut hasara, like like the like the thread of a hair. Hashem, uh, so so if Hashem went out of his way to cover it up, we should understand that they were on such a high level. But going back to the larger picture of everything about the relationship between Vaschanan and Akef. So what am I getting at when I you know when I keep on talking about that? So with that conversation. There is also the connected conversation of Vahaya and Shemoa versus Shema and Viahavta. We mentioned similar themes emerge in both passages, but it's here you'll notice that we find some differences. For example, Moshe Rabbeinu goes from talking in the singular, the Lashon Yachid, Viahavta, so Bechol Avavcha, Bechol Nafshecha, he goes to the plural, Bechol Avavchem, Bechol Nafshechem. Not only that, but Moshe Rabbeinu does not talk about Ahava in this passage. And earlier we had Viahavta Eschem Lokecha. He doesn't talk about love. What does he talk about here? He talks about Sechar and Onash. If you do the right thing, then you'll get rain in its time. And if you don't, there will be no rain, and, and you're going to perish all these bad things. We don't find Sechar and Onash, reward and punishment, coming up in, in Viahavta Eschem Lokecha. So we have love on the one hand, and we have these consequences on the other. If I can give it another name, I would call it Yira. Right? What does Hashem ask of you? Says Moshe Rabbeinu in Parshat Zekev. Yira, that you fear. That's the key to everything. We talk about Sechar and Onish. Those are components of the Yira aspect. When we talk about consequences, this all speaks from the place of Yira. Rambam talks about different kinds of yira. There's yiras haromimus, where you fear the majesty and the height, the loftiness of Hashem. And there's also a yira of schar and onesh. The Ramban talks about a different kind of yira, which is what I really want to focus on right now. Because it's not just about schar and onesh. But what is yira about? Yira is about understanding not just the physical, real-time consequences of your actions, but the consequences that, um, that, that the actions will create on the relationship that you have with the other. And this is where we finally can understand the title of this shir, the loving and fearing marriage. Right, we always know that love is a basic fundamental component of a relationship, of a marriage. But where does yira come in? We think of ahava as being the goal, right? Tshuva me yira, tshuva me ahava, tshuva me ahava is better, right? It It can accomplish more. Ahava is the fire of the relationship. I will argue that yira is 
the steering wheel, it's the framework, it's the foundation of the relationship. Right? Ahava is the Aseris Adibros. Yira is what happens when you commit the Chaita Egel. Ahava is Vihafta Shemelokecha. But what's Yira? It doesn't just say in Vahayim Shemoa that you have to love Hashem with all your heart and all your soul and all your assets. But in Vahayim Shemoa it says, Ula'avdo, Bechol Vavachem and Bechol Nafshchem. What's Ula'avdo? Ula'avdo is to serve, to do an avoda. Avoda, which is tefillah, it's also Yitzchak Avinu, which is associated with Gvura. All of these things are associated with Yira. And what's the point of Yira? If you don't have Yira in the relationship, you could have all the Ahava in the world. But if you don't have Yira, right, we saw uh, Moshe, um, Avram Avinu says this to Avimelech in Parshas Vayera, Rakein Yersel Kimbamakom Azeh. The only thing is that you don't have Yira. If you don't have Yira, you can have Ava, you can have all these wonderful qualities, but if you don't actually have an awe in, uh, of the consequences of your actions, then the relationship is going to fall apart. Because today you love Hashem, today you love your spouse, but what's going to happen when you're not feeling it tomorrow? Do you have the Yira of what will happen if you do something to compromise that relationship? That's why you need Yira in a relationship, even if Ava is the goal. But that Ava is going to fall apart if it's not founded and based and supported by Yira. In this way, Ahava is what sustains a relationship, while Yira is what maintains the relationship. And this is what Akev is adding to Vayeschanan. And this is also why Moshe Rabbeinu now speaks in the plural, you could argue. We talk about Sechar Nonesh, so um, Sechar Nonesh usually affects on a klali nature, it'll affect the klal, it'll affect everyone in the plural. When it talks about love, every person individually expresses their own Ahava. Right? No one's Ava can speak for anyone else's. When it, and when it comes to Yira, usually when we're together, we can all um, create an awareness of those consequences. But Ahava is something that each individual has to, and it comes from inside. Yira doesn't have to come from inside. There is an aspect of it that has to be from inside. But what's the point here, once again? The point is that you need Yira. Yira is the insurance, it's the foundation, it's what protects the relationship. You could argue it's what starts the relationship sometimes. You know, you can argue, should the relationship start with Ava, should it start with Yira? But the point is that even if Ava is the goal, it's the fire, it's the fuel, you need that buffer called Yira. And that, once again, is what Parsha's Akev is really about. Okay, and that gives us hopefully plenty to think about for this week's Parsha. And that will, will, will take care of us for now for Parsha's Akev. And I hope you all have a wonderful Shabbos and Bezras Hashem next week. We will pick up with Parsha Sra'ei and see a whole new segment of Moshe Benu's speech. And hopefully, with that segment, we will understand again the continuing of Moshe Benu's agenda. What does Moshe Benu have to tell us? What is going to be, you know, what are we, what are we looking at from then on in? And we'll see that Moshe Benu actually switches directions, right? So till now, Moshe Benu has been giving historical lessons, or really hashkafa lessons, and using history as the, as the picture. But we're going to see, we're going to be looking in an absolutely different direction next week to find out what I mean. We'll have to tune back into the database. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us here. And as always, thank you for joining us here at the database.